Good morning again. Let's take a look at God's Word together. And when we do that, I want us to think this week about really what we're hoping to, what we're hoping to get out of this. Why is God speaking to us in His Word? Why actually does God even save people to begin with? Why does He enter into a relationship with human beings? Why does God care about people? Why does He act in the world? What is He trying to do? In our confusing lives, we sometimes wonder, well, God, what are you doing right now? If we're here in a church or we're watching online, we're at least open to the idea that God exists. And so sometimes we wonder, God, what exactly are you doing in our lives? What is the larger purpose of why I'm here? We've been studying through two books in the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, where the people of God, the Israelites, were asking that, just that same question. They had been in exile away from their home, from their promised land, the place where they could worship God. And after years and years of exile, they're gradually returning to the promised land. And we're at the point now, we're in the book of Nehemiah, we're talking about the third group that's coming back to Jerusalem. This group is led by a man named Nehemiah. He was a servant of the Persian king, the man, the country that was in charge of the entire area. And while he's serving the king, he hears something about the promised land, where the people of God are in their city of Jerusalem, the wall has been destroyed. Nehemiah is very burdened about this. He prays and he gets permission from the king to go to Jerusalem. And today we're talking about he's arrived in Jerusalem and he's wondering, well, I'm back. Now what? What happens now? And we may have the same question. It's, it's been a pretty crazy year to say the least. We are slowly coming back into regular life, back into church, back into old routines, and we may wonder, now what? What is God doing now? What's my purpose now? Well, fortunately, we do have a word from God. He's told us what our mission, what our purpose is. And if we know God and have a relationship with him, then he has a purpose for his people. We just read this verse together a few minutes ago. It's Jesus himself gave us a purpose, a great commission and calling. In Matthew 28, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Make followers of him. And what that means is we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we teach them to observe all that I, all that Christ has commanded. He says, behold, he is with us always to the end of the age. If we're followers of God, if we draw breath, then our purpose here on earth is to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus, to find people that don't know him and bring them to know him, teach them to obey him and do what he says. The way we express that in our church is we came up with our own little mission statement, kind of condensing that. And the way we say it is our mission is to glorify God, bring God praise by modeling Christ, extending his love and building his church. This mission of pointing others to God has always been what God has desired for his people. In order to point people to God, the Israelites, when we're, we're talking about, they needed a city. They needed a place where people could see, oh, this is where God is. This is where he is working. And so today we're going to talk about them working on a construction project, but it's so much more than just a building project. Their goal is to create a place where people are drawn to God. And that's the same role we have today as God's people. We need to be a community that reflects God's presence with us. 
Both the Israelites and us are part of a kingdom building project. God is using us to build his kingdom, to draw people to himself. In order to do that, we need to be a compelling community that draws people in, that conveys that there is a great God here who's worthy to be worshiped and worthy to be known. We need to create a place that's not defined by what divides people out there. That's not defined by by race or political preference or our level of wealth, but a unique people united by God in a shared purpose and mission. We need to be serious about sharing Christ's love with one another, with our community, and with a world that doesn't know him. But how do we do that? Well, our text today in Nehemiah will tell us about how we can be a part of this kingdom-building project. And what we'll discover in our passage is that God's kingdom-building project requires careful planning and committed volunteers in order to persevere through opposition. We'll see how the, what God is building here needs us to carefully plan, be committed volunteers so we can persevere through any opposition that comes. Let's take a look at it. If you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We're actually going to be in chapter 2, about halfway through chapter 2. We're going to start chapter 2, verse 9. And we're going to talk about chapter 2 and chapter 3, but for right now we're just going to read chapter 2, 9 through the end. So if you're there and you're able, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I will read our passage for today. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 9. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 9, Nehemiah says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Verse 11, So I went to Jerusalem. I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon or serpent spring to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? 
Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the grace that you have shown us in, through your Son in drawing us to yourself. God, if you have saved us, if you had brought us out of darkness into light, thank you now for giving us a mission and a purpose to make disciples, to, to call people to know you, to train up followers of you, to build your kingdom. Lord, teach us today how to do that. Teach us how to carefully plan. Inspire us to be committed in serving you. God, we need you and your grace if we are going to persevere through the opposition that surrounds us. Help us, Lord, to live for you, to be focused on you, to build your kingdom for your glory. May you be the one we are focused on. May, may you increase, Lord. And may our own concerns and personal agendas decrease in light of your great glory. God, help us to see you clearly in your word today. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if we are followers of God, if we know him, if we have a relationship with Jesus, then he has called us to be a part of his kingdom building project. It's not a physical structure we're building, but he wants us to make disciples, train up followers of him. But if we're going to do this, be a part of God's kingdom building project, there's some steps, some actions it requires. The first it requires is careful planning. God's kingdom building project requires careful planning. We just read about it in verses 11 through 16 of our passage. I'm not going to read it again, but let's talk about it. Nehemiah has finished his long journey from the Persian king to Jerusalem. He finally arrives. He's ready to work. And verse 11 tells us that he was there three days. He took three days to rest. It was a long journey, so he took a little rest, but this is kind of a letdown to us if we're reading it. If you remember last week, Nehemiah worked up all this courage. He was there in front of the king. The king said, well, what do you need? He said, I want to go and rebuild, and I need these resources. The king gave him what he wanted. He rushes there, and then things slow down. But Nehemiah here is practicing patience. He's trusting God. He's going to take some time to plan. After all, this is a really big project he has in front of him. Remember, God's people had been in exile. The city had not had a, a workable, fixed wall for over 150 years by this point. People were used to it being broken down, used to the city following apart and not being a place that drew people to God. They were used to, people don't, don't come here, they're not interested in the God of this city. So Nehemiah needed to carefully plan this project. And that's what he does. We read it in Verses 12 through 16, he snuck out, rose, slipped out of the city at night so he could inspect the wall and see what its condition was. He went out at night for a couple of reasons. First of all, to keep it secret from his enemies in the area as long as possible. He only took one animal with him to reduce noise. People didn't know that he was out there. He also kept it secret, though, from his Jewish brothers and sisters, the Jewish people, probably because he wanted to plan. He wanted to make sure he knew what he was going to do before he announced, announced it to them. He says that God had placed it on his heart to rebuild this city. He had a burden. He wanted to do this for God, but he wanted a plan before he presented it to the rest of God's people. 
He needed some firsthand knowledge of the state of the wall. He wanted to see it, see the scope of the work that was needed. To lead the people, he needed to know the problem. He needed to be aware of the details and the obstacles that lay in front of them. And so for us, if we're going to build God's kingdom here in this community, then, then we can't rush into it. We need to carefully plan, move deliberately, see what obstacles could be in front of us and prepare to overcome them. Together, we can then learn the best way we can serve together and the best way that we can reach others. It may look slow on the outside, like, come on, let's, let's get going. But this type of planning is necessary to succeed. One scholar put it that praying and trusting God does not mean that research is not necessary. Sometimes we have to research and plan how we are going to serve our Lord. Nehemiah went, he took time to examine the wall. He seems to be alone, had just a few others with him. He took time to look at every part of it because once he knew what he was going to do, then he would call others to be a part of it. Scripture reflects great wisdom in taking the time to plan. The book of Proverbs in Proverbs 21.5 says that the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty, who rushes, comes only to poverty. And even in those moments when Nehemiah was out there alone, he wasn't really alone because he had a relationship with God and I'm sure he was in prayer asking God, God, how can we do this? Please give me wisdom to know how to serve you. He was aware that God was with him and would help him. So Nehemiah goes out of the city and it describes some of the places he was. It seems from what little we know of what Jerusalem looked like then, he was at kind of at the southern and eastern sides of the city Some of the walls were impassable, though. He couldn't go over them. This is kind of a rough map that that one person did. Again, we don't know 100% what the city looked like at that time. And if you have a different translation of the Bible in front of you, it may use some different words for different walls or different gates. The point is, though, that Nehemiah is looking at the city. He's looking to see where things have broken down. He's inspecting it, examining. He's viewing the wall like a doctor examining a wound on a patient. He's looking carefully and seeing what do we need to do? What needs fixed here? What needs fixed there? He's estimating the time and the resources that will be necessary to build God's kingdom here in this city. Again, he's taking time to research, to plan. And what he confirms is what he had been told. Remember, some people had come to tell him that much of the wall has been broken down. Much of it is destroyed. Again, there's parts that even his animal cannot get through, and he has to go on foot. And Nehemiah does this without telling anyone, but he knows he's going to need other people to accomplish this task. Perhaps by taking this time to look at different parts of the wall, maybe he's getting an idea of, okay, this person could work here, this person could work there. He's trying to figure out how he can assign people to finish this task. One scholar, James Hamilton, said, Nehemiah knows that he needs the people of God to accomplish the will of God. He could say, all right, well, I'll get started and I'll start laying bricks here and then eventually I'll get around to all of it. But he knows that will take far too long. So he takes time to look at it and to see where could people work that we could be effective in serving God. And it's only as we pray and plan together that we will succeed in drawing people to God here in this area. Nehemiah took this time. He was quiet with his plans, but now he's ready for help. 
So God's kingdom building project requires taking time to carefully plan, but it also requires committed volunteers. Committed volunteers. Not just carefully planning, but committed volunteers willing to work and to help to build God's kingdom. We saw this in verses 17 and 18. Verse 17 says, Then Nehemiah said to them, to the people of Jerusalem, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, well, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. They became those committed volunteers. In this verse, Nehemiah calls others to join him. Look at the words he uses in verse 17. He says, you see the trouble we are in. Then he says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision and mocking. As we've seen throughout these books, he has this emphasis on the people of God as a whole, on the group. He did not say to them, y'all got a problem and need to fix your wall. No, he says, we've got work to do. When Pastor Chuck Swindoll put it this way, when you cast blame and criticism, then you squelch motivation. People don't want to help you. But when you identify with the problem, you encourage motivation. This is what Nehemiah does. He, he hadn't been here. He had never been to this city in his whole life. It really wasn't his fault. But he said, we have a problem. This wall is broken down, so let us join together so we are no longer mocked. The people were in a bad situation, trouble, distress. The wall of the city is broken down. This is a serious situation. Yes, because it's dangerous and someone could attack the city, but it also looks bad. It doesn't represent God well. It's not good for God's reputation in the world. It doesn't help his people to tell others, yes, this God is great. They look, they say, but he doesn't take care of his own city. And so instead, the people had derision, disgrace, reproach. They had shame on them from God's judgment on their city. And this is what God had promised his people. He said if they sinned and rejected him, he would bring this type of judgment and shame. In Jeremiah 24, God says, I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And that's exactly what he did. Psalm 44 says, You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. God's people and their city were not functioning, were not doing what they were supposed to do. Jerusalem was supposed to be the city that people looked at and said, there is a great God who has a relationship with these people. It's supposed to be a city that shows God's goodness to his people. All the nations should see, wow, there is a really awesome God who works with these people, who knows them. He was supposed to reveal his glory. The walls of the city would demonstrate that God's people were protected and that they were free to worship him. This is pictured in another psalm. Psalm 48 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, another name for Jerusalem, in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. 
If the city had walls, it was defended. It showed to the world this God can defend and protect his people. Nehemiah is trying to tell people we should want this to happen. The Israelites should want God's name and reputation to be honored by all. They should want this wall to be rebuilt. Now things are a little different today. Today God's reputation isn't in a physical wall, but it's in the lives of his people who know him. God's people don't all live in one city. We are scattered throughout the world. And so if people want to see God, they have to look at our lives and do our lives honor him. We do not have a calling to, a holy calling to build a physical wall, but we of God's people are called to build his kingdom. God's kingdom isn't seen in one particular country or city, but it's seen in the lives of his followers. That's how people know this God is great and this God is at work. Our lives should be different like God is. They should be wholly set apart, should reflect him, not broken down like the walls of Jerusalem as Nehemiah looks at them. People should look at us individually and see something's happened. Someone or something has made a difference in this person. And they should be able to look at us all together and say, something has happened among this group of people, and I want to know what that is. We should want people to look at us and see God and desire to know him. And so that's what Nehemiah says to the Israelites. He's appealing to their love for the Lord. He's trying to motivate them to participate in God's work. And he calls them to act by rebuilding the wall. Because by rebuilding this wall, people would be drawn to God. In order to motivate them, he reminds them of what God has done. He says in verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God that had been on me for good. He says, God has been good and gracious. He has shown us favor. He particularly talked about himself as he says, also the words the king had spoken to me. God had brought blessing to his people by controlling events and rulers to serve his purposes. If you hear last week or remember, Nehemiah prayed, he spoke to the king, and then Nehemiah 2.8 says, the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is what Nehemiah is talking about. He's just sharing the story of what we talked about last week. Guys, I was there, I was praying, all of a sudden the king asked what was wrong. I said, I want to rebuild this wall, and the king said, I could go. It was incredible and amazing. By sharing what God was doing, he was pointing to how evidence of God's good hand, that could be a powerful motivator. If we share with others, this is what God has done for me. It can help confront someone who maybe is complacent, saying, I don't think God's doing anything anymore in our church or our country. Say, no, God has done this in my life. It can challenge us. If God has done this, what else could God do among us? And it can encourage us. I know it doesn't look good, but we can trust God. He is active. He has done things. He has shown his good hand in my life. Nehemiah used his testimony, his story, to encourage the people. He says, God, let me have a good conversation with the king. God has brought me here, so I know that God will help us when we build this wall. If you share your story, what God is doing in you, you can motivate others as well. Nehemiah is trying to convince the people that their bad situation is not irreversible. God could change things for his people. Yes, they had not had a city with, with walls that was functioning for 150 years, 
but God could still work. And you know what, friends, the, the same is true for us. Look, I, I know it's, uh, it's been a rough few years uh, for the church, to, uh, to say the least. It, it's been hard. There's been a lot of challenges, a lot of difficulty. But we are s- still here. God has still preserved his church and blessed in, in ways that we did not expect. Let, let me confess me doubting God. Last year, COVID started out, and we had legitimate concerns. We were like, will we have the, the finances to keep things running? And you've been faithful supporting God's people. We have overabundance what, what we need. Thank you for your faithfulness in that. And even still in this year, we have seen God work in people's lives in ways that are unexpected and surprising and reflect his great glory. We still believe in what God can do through our church, through this body. I believe, I hope you do too, that this church can make a difference in this community. I think it didn't happen because I've seen God's good hand and I know what he can do through his people. That's what Nehemiah saw, and so he calls the people to action. Come, let us build the wall. Let's strengthen our hands and do it. He's repeating a call that's seen throughout the Old Testament, people calling others to work for God's kingdom. In the book of 2 Samuel, King David uses some similar words. He says, let your hands be strong, be valiant. Saul, your Lord, the old king is dead, but the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. There is work to do. And the people respond, they say in verse 18, let us rise up and build. Nehemiah had been trusting in God, letting God guide him. Nehemiah had the king's permission to work. He had the materials he needed and he calls the people to respond and they agree. They start rebuilding. They strengthen, they set their hands to work on the project and they begin. Nehemiah needed this. When he came, he was the only one who had this thought, someone should rebuild the walls. But he knew he couldn't do it by himself. He knew that God has a people. God uses a people to build his kingdom. God rarely uses lone rangers. He works through his church and his people. And if you want evidence of that, then you can read chapter 3. I'm not going to stand here and read chapter 3, but you can read chapter 3 if you'd like. It's a list of all the people of Israel who were involved in this project. It details the work. It lists the people who are building. There's 38 names describing 42 groups of people working on 45 sections of the wall and building 10 gates. It's there if you'd like to read through it. The workers are named. The work is described section by section. Again, if we're looking at this type of map here, if, if you follow along, you can use this map or if you have some other ones, they kind of start in the northeast corner-ish and then it kind of goes counterclockwise around the city. If you read through chapter three with a picture, you'll, you'll see that's what's happening. And some would spend a lot of time talking about where is this gate, where is that gate, what does it look like? The, the point though is that the people as a whole are responding to what Nehemiah says. The whole community is working together on this project. They believe that God will give them success. They work hard and they work together. We don't know everything about where every wall was, where every gate is, or what it looked like, but if we read this chapter, we get a picture of the whole community working together. 
and the wall is being rebuilt as God's prophets had promised hundreds of years before. The prophet Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And those are phrases that are described in the chapter. You see them rebuilding those parts of the wall. Now, the work wasn't the same in every part. In some places, they had to rebuild what was there. Or your translation might have repair. In other places, it seems they built an all-new wall at a different place to make it firm or strong. They're not all doing exactly the same thing, but they're all working together for the same goal. If the city has walls, then people will see there is a great God here who has called us to know him. And the work is not done by one type of person. There are different types of people. Everyone in the city is participating Those who live in the city, those who live in the areas outside, those who have wealth, those who have less wealth, they're not all professional builders, but they are ready and willing to serve. Even if they didn't think, I I don't know if I'm the best person to build, Nehemiah, they were still willing to serve and do the work. Let me give you a couple examples. I'm not reading the whole chapter, but I picked out five verses that kind of give us a picture of the people who are working on the wall. Verse 1 says, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. So these are the priests, the religious leaders. They're supposed to be offering sacrifices, but they put those aside. We are working together on this project. Or look at verse 8. Verse 8, it says, next to them, Uzziel, the son of Harahiah, he was a goldsmith. He repaired. Next to him was Hananiah. He was one of the perfumers. He repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Goldsmiths, perfumers. These are not construction men, but they are involved in this project because they want to be a part of the work. Let's jump down to verse 12. Verse 12 says, Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halosheth, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters, men and women, were working together to build this wall. It wasn't one gender or another, but it was the whole community working together. How about verse 28 says, Above the horse gate, the priest repaired, each one opposite his own house. I picked this verse because there are multiple verses in here describing people working opposite in front of their house. They walk out the door, they go to the wall right there, and they start working. That kind of makes sense because they would have investment in the project. It's right there. They would have had motivation. This is the wall defending my house. They'd also would have had a pretty short commute. I wouldn't mind that. Right, right out there. Okay, this is the work I have to do. So they're invested in the work. And then finally, look at the last verse, verse 32. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Again, not construction workers, more goldsmiths, merchants. They were ones who handled money, finances, probably whatever form of papyrus paperwork they had then. But they went to do this project because they knew it was what God and his kingdom needed. God uses all kinds of people in his work. The New Testament tells us the same thing. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all are members of the body, though many they are one body, so it is with Christ. In one spirit we were all baptized into one body. 
Whoever we are, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. All of us here who genuinely know Jesus and have a relationship with him, we have different stories. We came to know him in different ways. No one person has exactly the same circumstances or events that brought them to know the Lord and brought them to this place. But if we are here, members of this church, then we are all a part of his work. And our work is sharing Christ's love. We share his love, we show his love to one another. We seek to encourage one another, care for each other. We can show his love to the community about those who need him. Show them this is what Jesus compels us to do. And we can show his love to a world that doesn't know him, to everyone who needs a relationship with him. We do this if we remember that is our purpose. Our purpose here is not a place I I go once a week just to get together with friends, but no, this is a place we go to be equipped for this ministry, for this purpose, this mission of making disciples. And we do this because God's glory is worth this. God is worth a life that is about him. Everything else in life comes second to God and knowing him, being a part of his mission and purpose. Pastor James Hamilton said, if we are going to live for something more than our trivial agendas to make our own names great, we must be convinced of the truth, goodness, and beauty of God that is on display in the gospel of Jesus Christ and advanced in the work of his church. There is something worth living for, worth dying for, worth putting every ounce of your being into. It is God's glorious purpose. It is God himself and what he is doing through his people. God wants to save people. He wants to build his kingdom through his church, his people here. This is our calling. And we'll unpack this some more in the coming weeks as we go through this book. But for now, we do have to remember that that great glorious calling, as wonderful as that sounds, it, it won't be easy We have to be carefully planning and be committed volunteers if we're going to persevere through opposition. We need to carefully plan and have committed volunteers in order to persevere through opposition. That's number three, persevere through opposition. We see this in our passage. In fact, the part we read in chapter two is bookended by some examples of opposition. Look back at verse nine. So chapter two, verses nine and 10. Nehemiah says, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. I gave them the king's letters. The king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Then Nehemiah expects the walls. They get ready to build. They start to go and then look at verse 19. But... When Sanballat the Haranite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us. They despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And Nehemiah responds in verse 20, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. We, his servants, will rise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. We've hit a point now, Nehemiah, where from here to the end, opposition will be frequent. 
and constant in this book. We'll see it again in chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 13. These enemies of God's people will try to stop them right at the beginning. They haven't even started yet, and they're trying to make them stop. And they'll continue throughout the process. And brothers and sisters, if we commit to follow God, then opposition will arise. There will be people, things, circumstances that will try to stop us. It is certain. Again, Pastor Chuck Swindoll said, when a person knows he is following God's will, it is unusual if at least one person doesn't oppose him. It's unusual if one person doesn't oppose him. So Nehemiah, he arrives at the at the city in the area. He comes with authority. He has an armed escort. He has letters that say he's allowed to do this. The escort, his letters show he has the king's support. But this doesn't sit well with some of these non-Jewish officials there. They are displeased. They are disturbed that someone would come to help or promote, seek the welfare of the Israelites. And they, from their perspective, have some, I don't know if I say good reasons, they have reasons for doing this. This would disrupt the balance of power in the region. We'll find out later they have a lot of financial investment in keeping things at the status quo the way they are. They are getting wealthy by God's people not living for him in the city. They would lose a lot of money. The three men who are mentioned here, one is Sanballat. He, we find out in history that he eventually, if he's not already, becomes governor of Samaria. And so he's the main opponent of what Nehemiah is doing. And if you know the New Testament and some of what Jesus does, this might help explain some of the tension between Jews and Samaritans in the time of Jesus, that this Samaritan governor was opposed to them rebuilding the city. Some others, there's Tobiah. He's a member of the Ammonites, who were longtime enemies of the Jews. And now he's a servant and official of Persia, but he still has that hatred. And later in verse 19, we meet another, Geshem, the Arab. More enemies of God's purpose are revealed in time. And these men and these followers were probably very careful in what they were saying. They weren't saying that the people shouldn't worship God or care about him. They were just saying, you you shouldn't do it that way. You can worship God and you can also serve our idols and help pay us money. That's something you can do as well. They were trying to serve their own personal interest. And they respond to what Nehemiah and the people are doing by jeering, taunting, mocking, laughing, scoffing at them, saying, what you're doing is ridiculous. These walls haven't been built in 150 years. What are you trying to do? They accuse them of rebelling against the king. This was a strategy that worked for them earlier. If you remember, a few months ago, we read in Ezra 4 that some people wrote a similar letter to the king. They said, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up uh, from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. The royal revenue will be impaired. So now, with their mocking, they're saying, are you rebelling against the king? They're trying to scare the workers and undermine Nehemiah's credibility. If they rebelled against the king, the king had every right to come and put them all to death. And so their ridicule and their threats, these are common strategies of those who oppose God. And they seem to be threatening with their words, are you rebelling against the king? They seem to be saying, we can write to the king again. We wrote to him before and he made you stop. We can do that again. This time, though, is a little different. Nehemiah has planned. Nehemiah got letters, explicit letters from the king giving him permission 
to do this. And so their threats don't faze him. But even though he has these letters, he still responds to them in a very interesting way. Instead of focusing on the fact that the king gave him permission, he gives the authority to God. Look at verse 20. Then I reply to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will rise and build. He's saying the Israelites' success, their prosperity is under God's control alone. No human controls them. No person can stop them or stand against them. Nehemiah does not fear these people. He will not compromise God's work. God is, the God of heaven is over everything that they are doing and that his people are working on. I'll admit that this wouldn't be the strategy I would use. If somebody comes, if I was Nehemiah and they came and said, are you rebelling against the king? I would whip those letters out so fast. I'd be like, here they are. Read them and weep, boys. You can turn around and go home. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. He wanted to glorify God and be clear that, yes, I have permission from the king to do this, but we are rebuilding the city because it is what God wants done. And by focusing on God, not on his purpose or his agenda, he's creating a clear distinction. We are following God, doing what he wants. You are opposed to him. And so he makes no effort to include them. He says they have no portion, right, or claim. They have no allotted share, no entitlement, no memorial or ancient claim to Jerusalem. Again, this is how God's people have responded to this opposition. Back again in Ezra 4, Verse 3, the leaders then, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel, said to their opponents, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. We alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as the king, King Cyrus, king of Persia, has commanded us. Nehemiah didn't want to associate with these people who were opposed to God's work. I'm sure he would welcome them if they said, we are so sorry, we want to know God, we want to live for him. If they would have repented and turned from sin and said, we want to be a part of God's people, I'm sure Nehemiah would have welcomed them, but that's not the case. They are the enemies of God right now. And so the people ignored them. They remained focused on building the wall. Nehemiah had planned, they were committed, so they could persevere through this opposition. But not all the enemies were outside the walls of Jerusalem. Not all of the enemies were Gentiles or non-Jews. Look at Nehemiah 3, verse 5. It's listing the people who are working, and it says next to them, so next to some other people, there were the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. The nobles of Tekoa would not stoop. They would not put their shoulder into working and this task. They did not support it. They didn't cooperate with what Nehemiah was doing. Maybe these people of Tekoa, they resented Nehemiah's leadership and supervision. Some had said they were kind of close to the area of that one man we read about, Geshem the Arab. They were close to his area. Maybe he influenced them. Regardless, they were not serving God even though they claimed to know him. They said, no, we're not going to help. You can use some of our people, but not all of us are involved in this. And this type of opposition within God's people, we will see again in Nehemiah. We'll see it in chapter 5 and in chapter 13 later. It will not be easy for us to follow God. It will not be easy for us to obey his word. It will not be easy for us to honor him and his mission for our church. So what do we do? How do we respond? 
to this opposition? Well, first, we, we need each other. That's one verse, that 3-5, in the large chapter 3 of all these people working together. So yes, these Tekoites were opposed, but they were a small minority. Most of the people were working together. Scholar Mervyn Brenneman said, in order not only to survive, but also to be effective in the midst of opposition from a hostile secular culture, the church must exhibit a cooperative spirit. In order to survive, the church must work together. We're on the same purpose, the same mission. So we need each other, but most importantly, we need God because he can overcome any opposition. We sang in the song, if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? Or take a look at Isaiah 51, verses 7 through 8. God says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings when they mock and criticize you. For the moth will in the end eat them up like a garment. The worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, my salvation to all generations. Any person who opposes God or says, I'm not going to be a part of God's work, you should stop doing that. Any person who says that, they are not going to live forever. Someday, one way or another, they will die. But God's kingdom lasts forever. These are the lessons we learned from Nehemiah about planning, about being committed, and then persevering through this opposition. But even though these were lessons we saw from Nehemiah, they're really lessons we can learn if we look at God himself. You know, God did these things too. God carefully planned to save us. From before the creation of the world, he had a plan of redemption. These people will reject me, but I will save them through Jesus Christ. He had a plan. And then Jesus... He committed to voluntarily take on our humanity. He stood up and said, yes, I commit. I will do this. I will become human to save these people who are far from God. He took our sin on the cross, died to pay the penalty for it. No one made him do that. He decided to do that to save us. And now, since he has risen from the grave, there is no opposition that can withstand our resurrected Lord. God planned, Jesus committed, and now nothing can stand against him. If you do not know this Jesus, then your heart, your soul is like the city of Jerusalem that Nehemiah finds as he inspects it. Broken down, broken by sin, crushed by separation from God, vulnerable to an eternal separation from him, an eternal judgment of God. But if you know him, if like the people of Israel, you say, no, I I want to know him. I want to know this God. If you turn away from that sin and say, Jesus, I want to know you, the one who voluntarily came and died for me. If you repent or turn away from sin and you believe and trust in him, then like this city of Jerusalem, God can rebuild you and make you whole. He will give you eternal life, put you in a city, a home, a safe place that will last forever. I would encourage you, if you don't know him or have questions about it, to get in touch with me or or talk to someone. Come to know Christ, the one who can rebuild us. He wants to know you. He's worthy 
of our praise and worship, our whole lives given to him because he alone is the one who is worthy of that.